Welcome to Pete's Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. On this episode, we're going to fulfill our first listener email request and talk about lipid management. Lipid management is actually our only email request, so either I'm doing a pretty good job of picking topics, or you're all just shy about sending in suggestions. Either way, lipid screening and management is a great topic that doesn't get much attention in pediatrics. It gets so little attention that in a survey published in the Journal of Pediatrics in 2017, only 46% of respondents rated themselves as moderately to very knowledgeable about the 2008 American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines, and even fewer, just 26%, were familiar with the more up-to-date 2011 guidelines from the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. On this episode, we're going to do our part to make those numbers a little bit better, and we'll focus on the NHLBI guidelines. We care about lipids in kids because cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death in the United States, and the risk factors and behaviors that cause it start in childhood. And it's not just things like obesity and smoking. There's a lot of evidence that atherosclerosis starts early in life. The first data came from soldiers who died in the Vietnam and Korean Wars, where autopsies found that 45% of casualties from Vietnam and more than 75% from Korea had coronary artery atherosclerosis. Yes, it was the 50s and 60s, and there were still doctor-recommended brands of cigarette, but these weren't the kinds of people you would expect to have cardiovascular disease. For a more thorough look at atherosclerosis and risk factors, there are two major studies that get cited. The Pathobiological Determinants of Atherosclerosis in Youth, or PDAY study, and the Bogalusa Heart Study. The P-Day study ran from 1985 to 1993 and looked for atherosclerosis and risk factors in people between the ages of 15 and 34. Out of nearly 3,000 people who died from external causes, everybody had atherosclerotic lesions and the prevalence of coronary lesions increased consistently with age. The P-Day study found that high non-HDL cholesterol, low HDL, hypertension, smoking, diabetes, and obesity were all strongly correlated with the degree of atherosclerosis, and that the more risk factors a person had, the more likely they were to have severe, extensive disease. The Bogalusa Heart Study found similar information to the P-Day study, but it's worth mentioning because of how massive it is. I say is because despite the fact that it started in 1972, The Bogalusa Heart Study is still collecting data, and according to clinicaltrials.org, it's going to keep going until 2023. It's an epidemiologic study based in a rural, biracial population in Bogalusa, Louisiana, to look at risk factors and progression of heart disease, and patients can be followed from birth through adulthood or for any range in between. So far, over 12,000 people have been enrolled in the study, and it's produced more than 1,000 publications from its data. The Bogalusa data reached a little bit further than P-Day in terms of risk factors and identified BMI, blood pressure, total cholesterol, triglycerides, LDL, and low HDL as having a strong association with the extent of atherosclerotic disease. In reviewing all the data, the NHLBI guidelines identified hypertension, physical activity, nutrition, obesity, tobacco exposure, diabetes, family history, and dyslipidemia as major risk factor areas for future cardiovascular disease in children and adolescents. More specifically, hypertension requiring treatment, smoking, a BMI at or above the 97th percentile, diabetes, chronic or end-stage renal disease, and Kawasaki disease with current coronary aneurysms are all considered high-level risk factors, 
while hypertension not requiring treatment, a BMI between the 95th and 97th percentile, HDL less than 40, Kawasaki disease with regressed aneurysms, and chronic inflammatory conditions are all considered moderate risk factors. We covered hypertension and Kawasaki disease in their own episodes, and diabetes has its own episode coming up. And most standard anticipatory guidance covers healthy diet, exercise, and not smoking, so we'll focus on lipids and family history. For family history, everything is translated from adult data, but we look a little further out in the family tree for kids than we do for adults. Since parents of pediatric patients are typically fairly young themselves, they often haven't had time to get any kind of cardiac diagnosis to add to the history, so we ask about grandparents, aunts, and uncles in addition to the kids' parents. The things we care about are chest pain requiring treatment, heart attacks, any kind of catheter intervention, coronary bypass surgery, stroke, or sudden cardiac death before 55 years old in men or before 65 years old in women. Any of that family history puts your patient into a higher risk category. With lipids, the specific things we care about are tied in with screening, but we should do some quick background first. HDL, high-density lipoprotein, is considered the good cholesterol because it removes fats and cholesterol from cells and from plaques in the arteries and brings it all back to the liver to be reused or excreted into the bile. It's kind of like a street sweeper for the arteries, and HDL is the only high number we want to see on a lipid profile. The other two we look at, triglycerides and LDL, low-density lipoprotein, tip the balance more toward forming lipid plaques in the arteries. That is absolutely an oversimplified version, but it's enough to get the basic concept of what we're looking for. So, screening. There is no recommended screening, routine or otherwise, for kids under 2 years old. For older kids, there are four age groups. Two of them get universal screening, and two only get checked under certain circumstances. For kids between 2 and 8 years old, or between 12 and 16 years old, there's no routine screening, but if the patient has diabetes, hypertension, a high-risk medical condition, a BMI at the 95th percentile or higher, or is a smoker, you should get two fasting lipid panels and average the results. Kids also get tested in those age ranges if there's a parent, grandparent, sibling, aunt, or uncle with a history of early cardiovascular disease. Remember, that's before age 55 in men and before age 65 in women. Or a parent who has a total cholesterol higher than 240 or another known dyslipidemia. Universal screening, checking everyone regardless of their history, is recommended for patients between 9 and 11 years old and again between 17 and 21 years old and there are two options for how to test. The old standby is a fasting lipid panel, and if the LDL is over 130, the non-HDL cholesterol is 145 or higher, the HDL is less than 40, or triglycerides are over 100 or over 130 if the patient's 10 or older, you repeat another fasting lipid panel and average the results to see where the patient falls on the management algorithm. The problem with that is that fasting labs stink for everyone, you have to get patients to come back for another appointment and somehow keep a kid from eating until after the blood is drawn, none of which is easy to do. So luckily, there's a non-fasting option. LDL and triglycerides aren't accurate unless the patient is fasting, so for screening in a non-fasting sample, we look at the HDL and the non-HDL cholesterol, which you calculate by subtracting the HDL from the total cholesterol. 
If the non-HDL cholesterol is 145 or higher, or the HDL is less than 40, it's abnormal enough that you go back to getting two fasting lipid panels and averaging the results. When it comes to interpreting the averaged fasting lipid panels, you're going to want to look at the algorithm that's included in the guidelines. There's a lot going on, and it is definitely not worth the effort it would take to memorize it for the clinic or for an exam, but we'll go through the basics here. The algorithm has three main pathways. If the LDL is between 130 and 250, you target LDL. If the triglycerides are between 130 and 500, you target triglycerides. And for patients with triglycerides over 500 or LDL higher than 250, you make a referral to a lipid specialist. If you're not referring to a specialist, you should look for any potential medications or other conditions that might be causing the lipid abnormalities. After that, the triglyceride and LDL-targeted pathways both start out with lifestyle intervention. There are some specific dietary recommendations, but the general idea is to decrease fats and carbohydrates in the diet and to be more physically active. After six months of lifestyle intervention, you repeat a fasting lipid panel to see what kind of progress you've made. In the triglyceride pathway, if you meet your target after six months, you continue on the same program and reevaluate with a fasting lipid panel once a year. If the repeat triglycerides are between 130 and 200, or between 100 and 200 in a patient under 10, you intensify the diet and exercise regimen and check again in six months. If the number on your repeat panel is still over 200, you make a referral to a specialist. The LDL pathway gets a little more complicated. If you drop LDL below 130, you stay on the same track and repeat a fasting lipid panel annually. For patients with an LDL between 130 and 189 who don't have any other risk factors or family history of cardiovascular disease, you continue the same management but repeat a fasting lipid panel every 6 months. If the LDL is 190 or higher in any patient, it's time to start treating them with a statin. For everyone else, a combination of LDL and risk factor profile determine the next step. For a quick refresher, high-level risk factors are hypertension requiring treatment, smoking, a BMI at or above the 97th percentile, diabetes, chronic or end-stage renal disease, and Kawasaki disease with current coronary aneurysms. Lower-level risk factors are hypertension not requiring treatment, a BMI between the 95th and 97th percentile, HDL less than 40, Kawasaki disease with regressed aneurysms, and chronic inflammatory conditions. Patients with an LDL between 160 and 189 who have a positive family history, one high-level risk factor, or two moderate-level risk factors should be started on statins, and so should patients with an LDL between 130 and 160 with two high-level risk factors or one high-level and two moderate-level risk factors. Statins tend to make pediatricians nervous because we don't use them very much but the evidence says they're pretty safe. Because there's a risk of myopathy and liver injury, it's recommended to get a baseline creatine kinase, AST, and ALT before starting treatment, and to start your patient with the lowest possible dose. After four weeks of treatment, you repeat a fasting lipid panel, ALT, and AST. The CK only gets repeated if the patient starts having muscle pains. If you've hit the LDL target, you continue the same dose of the statin and repeat the lipid panel, ALT, and AST in 8 weeks, and then again at 3 months. If on your repeat check the patient still isn't at the goal LDL, 
you bump up the dose to the next step and repeat the whole process in four weeks. Everything is really based on the individual doctor's level of comfort, but most of the recommendations say you can feel safe taking two steps up in the statin dose before you call a lipid specialist. Once you've reached a stable dose, you should repeat the lipid panel, ALT, and AST every three to four months for a year, and then every six months after that. That should do it for lipid screening. There are a lot of details that you shouldn't be too worried about for general practice or test taking as long as you know where to find the information for quick reference. The main takeaway points are to watch out for cardiovascular disease risk factors in kids, especially the ones you can modify like obesity, smoking, and exercise, and to do universal screening between the ages of 9 and 11 and again between 17 and 21. Non-HDL cholesterol and HDL are valid options for non-fasting screening, which can help increase the number of patients you get tested. If you find anything abnormal on that non-fasting screen, you still have to move on to fasting labs to figure out what to do next. As an aside, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of this changes in the next five years. Cardiovascular disease is an area where pediatric recommendations tend to lag behind adults, and there have been a ton of changes in how lipids are managed in grown-ups. So it seems like it's only a matter of time before those changes start filtering down to kids. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you find your podcasts. You can send any comments or suggestions for future episodes to pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Peds Soup.